Okay, Gary, let's let's get right into it and talk about Viola Spolin and, and Neva Boyd. Yeah, Viola Spolin and Neva Boyd. Viola once said that uh, the influence of Neva Boyd has never left her for a single day. Neva Boyd was, I think, as an important uh, as an uh, important a teacher uh, to Viola as Viola was to me and many others because it was her philosophical influence on the nature of play and what play behavior is that inspired Viola to come up with this uh, system to train children to be stage worthy, you know? So they, uh, and, and to do it in a way that's, um, uh, you know, what Neva Boyd called it was organism as a whole, which Viola re relabeled as, uh, you know, mind, body, and intuitive connection, spontaneous action. And they brought their work to Hull House in Chicago. And of course, Jane Addams was the mother of social work. And right. Viola, the mother of improv, and I guess Neva, the mother of play and games. And well, games. Neva was in charge of the, um, uh, she was a sociologist at the Hull House and was uh, involved, and, and, and Viola came in as a high school student assisting Neva Boyd in this uh, recreational, um, uh, you know, project. Uh, Neva Boyd was, uh, was basically the head of, you know, working in that, in, in, at the Hull House, and, and uh, uh, doing folk dancing and traditional games. And it was that experience that Viola developed all of her uh, understandings of how to deliver uh, you know, games uh, as, as uh, tools for becoming socialized. Because that's really what it was. Games were the socialization process. She came in in high school. Viola, Viola came in and in, in high school. Yeah, as, as as a young woman, as a, you know, uh, in Chicago in the thirties. Uh, Neva Boyd was the uh, the director of I think that program, if I'm not mistaken. You might double check that with Aretha Sills. All right. Wow. And so, um, tell us about how you met Viola. What that was about. How that happened. So I was in L.A. Uh, but my first year in LA and I was taking uh, a, a, a standard improv class from a, another group. Uh, and that group was focused on comedy on very funny be, you know, topping one another, becoming up with strange characters. And uh, I had been a mime most of my career. So I thought this would be a great way to sort of break out of that and become verbal. Uh, and it was really like, a, uh, you know, an intense, uh, it was like fencing. It was, uh, it was very high pressure to be funny, to come up with the goods, to basically be, you know, uh, witty. And I held my own in that class, but it was very nerve wracking. Uh, a friend of mine was at uh, college at Potsdam University in New York, and he was doing a paper on Viola Spolin, and he had just read that Viola Spolin had opened up an improv school in California, in Los Angeles, and would I go get some information about um, this woman, Viola Spolin, whom I had never heard of. So I went down to the class, and uh, she had a young man teaching for her, a, a fellow teaching for her, a bearded guy, 
Uh, and I said, do you, is there any information or brochures I can send to my friend on this violist bowl? And, and he said, no, we really don't have anything like that. But if you really want to know about it, come and take the class. And so I said, sure, another improv class. That's fine. So I took that class. And it was very different than the other sort of verbal fencing. And the games were much more relaxing. It was much more mellow. And literally what he would do is he would uh, take, Viola had all of her games on cards, these theater game file cards, and he would select cards and read from the card and side coach from the card. And it was kind of nice. So I was enjoying that. We were there for about, I don't know, two, three weeks, maybe a little longer, when one day Viola Spolin comes in uh, to watch him teach. This is uh, at the Pilot Theater in Santa Monica on Santa Monica Boulevard. Not in Santa Monica, on Santa Monica Boulevard in Hollywood. And um, so she sits down in the front row. We're all kind of a little intimidated. And uh, so he starts leading us in some game. And uh, within minutes, Viola stands up and she says, all right, that's it. You don't know what you're doing. Get out. (gasps) And literally fired him right there on the spot. And they went out into the lobby to have some final words. And back comes Viola Spolin without this guy. And so she said, um, okay, we're starting again. I'll be leading the class. So she led us in a mirror, in, in a follow the follower mirror. Now, I had never experienced anything like this. And having already been a mime my whole career, I was thought this mirror is nothing. You know, I could always imitate people. But the way she was coaching me, I was in this very strange off-balance way. I could not get my bearings on how to follow the other person. And I was literally having, uh, I was vibrating like this. I was struggling and Viola was yelling over my shoulder, let it flow, let it flow. Finally, she stopped because I was just having such trouble. I was uh, like locked up. I, I was completely thunderstruck. And so she puts her hand on my shoulder, sitting, I'm sitting there, and she addresses the rest of the class, and she says, now you see this young man here, he had a direct experience. He got to see his partner in the mirror without using his head. And then she said, I suspect it's the first time in his life he ever saw anybody. Bells went off in my mind because she had literally zeroed in on my central problem at that point, which was I was so such a defended person trying to think my way out of every situation. I grew up in an abusive family, so I was hypervigilant, you know. Uh, I was picking up cues. I was good at reading people. I was good at, at judging my responses and how to, and I thought improv was the perfection of that process, which is what led me to going to improv in the first place. Well, when she said that, I realized that this is profound. And uh, so at the end of the class, I came up to her and I said, Chris Bolin, I want to thank you. And she whirled on me. She said, don't thank me. Don't thank me. It's not me. It's not me. It's the work. She said, don't make me your guru. Get out of here. 
she was very uh, abrasive, abrupt that way. Well, it didn't bother me at all because of the way I grew up. So uh, the, literally the next words out of my mouth were, I'm going to be your apprentice. And that stopped her. And she said, oh, honey, she says, you don't understand what you're talking about. Uh, I could go into a very long and wonderful story about it. I've written it on my blog called How I Met Viola Spolin. But the upshot was I became her, not only her apprentice, but um, uh, uh, a, a personal friend of hers. And uh, she allowed me to stay in the class until I had my breakthroughs, which were a few years down the road. Uh, but um, it was because she, of the way she taught and who she was, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, and I recognized something very deep in that first discovery of hers that I, I, I had never seen anybody directly. I viewed everybody as the enemy, and I was the um, I was I was always in opposition to people and trying to make my way, usually with humor. Again, another reason why I thought improv would have been my ticket, you know, to perfecting my my this this preternatural skill. Um, but it's the exact opposite. She allowed me to just become a human being and put me in touch with myself. I had had a lot of emotional problems and I was going through therapy during that period anyway. So, but I think working with her accelerated my whole process and, uh, and uh, I, be, um, you know, she just changed my whole life. How long did you actually study with her? Oh my goodness. Well, I, uh, let's see, I met her in 1976, 77. And I studied with her. That class went on for about six or eight years. And by that time, I had already had some breakthroughs. But um, uh, at that point, I was, uh, she had allowed me finally in about the eighth year to start assisting her and teaching on my own, kids mostly. And, um, uh, but I knew her uh, till the end of her life from, from that first day, from 1976 through 1995. But I think the I lasted in the class about six or eight years. And then she kind of passed the baton on to you. Well, no. Her son, Paul Sills, came into Hollywood in the 80s. And he started, uh, I, I start, uh, she forced me to, you know, she forced me on him, which he wasn't happy about at the beginning. Um, but uh, he had had. A, I'm sorry. What? I'm sorry. I heard Paul could be abrasive himself. Oh my goodness, way more than, yeah. yeah, way more than Viola. Uh, he, he just couldn't tolerate people abusing the work or not getting it. And he, I asked him one time about that, you know, and, and uh, uh, he said, essentially, I'm a director, you know, and uh, I don't know what to tell people. I'm not a teacher, really. So, so I get mad and shake them up. And sometimes that that'll that takes him out of it or something like that but what it ended up doing for paul that that style was um the people who got it uh he, he collected quickly and 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 led to great careers i mean he's you know uh and the people who couldn't get it just ran screaming from the room you know for the most part so um he was always left with the most talented people to do viola's work uh, so that's how that that worked. So I think the combination of Viola being the teacher 
and him at uh, being the director at Second City led to that beautiful combination of creating a school for improvisation back in the early 60s. You know, I always say her book, which I suggest to everybody that's interested, should really be a textbook for therapists because there's so much wonderful things in there about children, about attitudes, about perceptions, and about side coaching. And can you tell me yes. about side coaching and how that works with you? Well, side coaching, yeah, this is really, I think, the challenge. Um, uh, you know, she tried to codify the whole system, and her use of side coaching is, uh, I think, you know, uh, the, the most brilliant way to direct and to teach because rather than give notes after the fact, if you can say something that would release the player in the moment they're struggling with the problem, they won't have to remember it the next time they could get themselves out of it right then and there. So the side coach is a fellow player throwing assists into the, into the game. Um, the problem with being a good side coach though, is it's a, you have to go back to Neva Boyd and realize that it has to be done on a very non authoritarian, um, don't, uh, it's not a, uh, it's not a command by an authority. It's a suggestion or, a, uh, a life preserver or, uh, something to throw into the play that will turn it around. Um, but to be a good side coach, you have to know number one, what the player is going through, what the resistance is that they're facing. Number three, have played enough games and know, have enough background to know what, is the right thing to say that might release them. Now it's again, it's trial and error. And I remember sitting next to Viola Spolin and she would be calling out a side coach here and there, like use your wear or slow motion or, uh, you know, no urgency or something like that. And if nothing happened to the players, she would just turn to me and say, well, that didn't penetrate, <laughs> you know, but she was so it's a constant um it's it's a constant teasing out what's the right thing to say to unlock the players uh at the moment that they need something so you have to be a diagnostician you have to have a great background in the games and you had to have to understand what the player is facing as a player for me i think the reason i'm a good side coach is, is because i faced all of those things um, uh, in my early years, I was a terrible player and Viola pounded her head trying to unlock, you know, my potential with side coaching. At one point she even said after a few years in, she said, you know, maybe you should think about doing something else. And I said, that really stung. I and I said, well, you know, Viola, I said, you know, I may not be getting it, and but there's nowhere else I'd rather be right now than in this class. And she says, all right, I accept that. So she allowed me to, you know, basically find my way through. Um, uh, a lot of teachers will just look at somebody and say, oh, he's hopeless and, you know, get rid of people. Um, but again, that's part of that authoritarian um, understanding that the teacher knows is, is literally sees a result that they want and is really not there to, um, for the development of the student. 
Viola was there for the development of the student. A lot of teachers are there. If the student isn't getting it right away, you know, well, maybe you should take 101 again or, you know, go, you know, it's, it's the school, the system is, is screwed up that way. Viola allowed everybody to be at different levels in that class until they had their aha moments. And once I started having my aha moments, they, they started coming more frequently and I started understanding. And at my major breakthrough, uh, I remember Viola leaning over to me uh, and she wanted to say something to me because I had had a major breakthrough in a game called Exits and Entrances, which I write about. And she leaned over to me because, again, she, she didn't want to ever say that was wonderful or that was terrible. She never said that. She just said, well, did, did you achieve the focus or didn't you achieve the focus? It was almost like a, a, you know, a rule. Uh, because if she said that was good, you're getting approval from the, the authority, approval from the teacher. And I remember feeling so wonderful after that game, and I'm sitting next to her back in the audience, and she leans over to me, and then she thinks better of it and hesitates, and then finally she, 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 she not, brings me over and she whispers to me, she says, you know you had a breakthrough there. And I said, yeah. I know Viola. And she goes, okay. You know, and that was as much as she would make of it, you know, which was wonderful. And I understood right then and there exactly what, what not relying on the authority or not trying to please the teacher. As a matter of fact, one time she even said, well, you finally stopped trying to please mama, didn't you? And that was it. That was one of my major stumbling blocks. I wanted so badly to be good for, to, for Viola to see me as good. Uh, that when I finally dropped that, uh, uh, we were friends, we were peers. When I finally dropped that, I lost that. When I finally dropped that, we became friends and peers. Is that what you Yeah. Mean? When I finally dropped that, that um, um, wanting to please her, and wanting to do it so that she th would think I was good. Uh, um, that's when that's that's when I realized, you know, uh, it worked because we were peers, we were fellow players, and uh, it was just like a good, you know, clap on the back uh, more than a than a a gold star on my forehead, you know. Well, I think because of your childhood, that was transference initially, pleasing mom. And oh yeah that relationship that's an example of therapeutic improv that's not necessarily meant as therapeutic but is that yeah but it's the same thing in a therapeutic relationship I think you know you have to break that dependency and see the therapist as a side coach rather than as the authority telling you how to be it's about granting autonomy to the student yeah I well, this is a side note on me, but I think I get so caught up in wanting them initially, wanting people to do it right, that the words no and don't and whatever, and but you know, studying side coaching and really working on, I can slip into it sometimes, but it was more about my ego, what I wanted. To of say. course it is. Yeah, of course it is. Viola was always after me about that, and that's why I constantly read the book. And she would say, she says, don't lecture. She said, don't, don't show off how much you know about this. She said, you know, 
She said, honey, the, the, a penny lecture comforts the teacher more than it does the student. And, and she wouldn't, you know, and I have to fight this continually, even to this day. I want so badly for people to get it that if I don't allow them their own process, their own timeline, I'm basically guiding them toward what I think they should be doing. And that is, a, even if a Viola would call that, you're being a benign dictator. You know, you're, you're, for their best interest, you're trying to get them to do something. And, but and you can't let them, you can't do that because then you're going to enter into a teacher-student relationship. There's a power differential. So then you debrief. Do you usually debrief after you play games? No, no, I'm not a debriefer. And Viola would say, whenever I would try to debrief after I had an experience in a workshop, you know, I'd say, I, I wanted to debrief myself after I had some success. And I'd say, oh, I get it. So that when you're doing this and you're doing that, and she says, honey, she said, not now. Save it for the coffee clatch. <laughs> there's, there's another game to play, you know? And I started to understand what that was. So I, my debriefs always take place in a social setting that's not like a lesson. Okay. The more you make it a lesson, the more you fall back into that authoritarian teacher role model, that teacher model that we all come out of that's really poisoned our way to learn in our society. So um, we would save it for the coffee clatch or we wouldn't even discuss it because it was, an, it was already accepted. I came up with a great idea about, about debriefs. Uh, and again, debriefs are valuable if you want to present yourself to your client as a, uh, an authority, someone with great knowledge and an expert. Um, uh, you know, that model is well understood, but it's actually a little toxic only because you're in a different, you're in a different position, power position. So uh, I had an argument with somebody um, at a, a, an applied improv conference and I said, you know, the debrief, because they think that debrief is the most valuable thing. I said, no, the success of the game is, is the most valuable thing. If they've had the experience, it's already in them. So I said, have you ever, have you ever, do you know the song, if you're happy and you know it? So I said, so let's, let's do it. So I said, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it and you want the world to show it, if you're happy and you know it, let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah, great. That's it, you know? You don't have to talk about it. She would, Viola would say that's gilding the lily. Right, right. That's funny. Um, yeah. So I, can, I imagine that when, 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 Viola came into room. She had a presence. I don't know. I just see the way. Oh she, yeah. She was dressed, everything, and what was her presence like? If you can describe it at all. Oh, she was very relaxed, and she could be a lot of fun. She loved to talk, tell stories of uh, her days as a as the director of the Young Actors Studio, and she had wonderful stories of wonderful experiences and shows that she put on with these brilliant kids back in the forties. Um, but, uh, she would always get down to business. Um, but if you, she was quick to anger, she had a real mercurial temper 
And, uh, you know, for example, if uh, she said she stayed a game, for example, and uh, somebody didn't, so they said they'd come up to her and they say, so Viola, how do you want me to do it? She was, I don't know how you want to do it. I'm not the answer book. <laughs> you know, she would, and that would intimidate a lot of people because she would raise her voice. And she could yell. Now, yelling to me, because of the way I grew up, was just, uh, you know, a form of communication that didn't have any violence attached to it, you know. So it was really easy for me to accept that a raised voice was just a, uh, uh, you know, her way. Uh, one time, though, uh, I remember sitting in a, in a workshop, and she, there was some young actor kid down on the, on the floor working on something, and she just said, what are you doing? You know, you're done, no, stop. You know, and then she said, all right, start again and let's do it again. And so she, she gave him another shot at it. And this, that time I was watching him and he was like, uh, you could see he was completely discombobulated and, and not knowing what to do. He, he, he was intimidated by her yelling. And he literally just second-guessed himself out of any kind of success in that game. And, and I could see in his jerky movements that he was not getting anything, you know. And Viola was already, because she was already, you know, upset, she didn't notice it. So I, I leaned over to Viola and I said, Viola, you know, after you yelled at him, do you see he, 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 can't, even, he can't even make a move? Oh, and she, she leaned over to me and she put her hand on my hit, uh, arm and she said, oh, thank you, honey. And she went down onto the floor and she said, I understand that some of you are intimidated by my raised voice. She said, I'm not angry. I'm passionate. She said, but... She said, I, I understand that some of you take that the wrong way, you know. So she said, I'll try to figure out something to do about it. So, again, because she was not going to stop who she was. She was not going to uh, edit who she was. That's who she was. Right. She just right. would fly off the handle. Um, but it was always about the work and never about them personally. But people take yelling at being yelled at personally. So anyway, for about a month after that, she'd be side coaching and then she'd, she'd get all frustrated and, you know, and it was easy to frustrate her if the game wasn't going well. And she'd say, what are you doing? She declared. Or she shrieked. So she added that little extra bit to let everybody know she knew she was yelling. And that kind of took the sting away and it kind of made a joke of the fact that she was being, you know, she was yelling at them. Uh, but after that, you know, that she did, nobody took, nobody took her yelling as a, uh, as, as a, a sign of disapproval, which that's what she really wanted. Most people feel when they're being yelled at, they're being disapproved of. But if you step back and you see that the, the yelling is, the fact that the teacher is frustrated that they haven't succeeded in unlocking whatever it was 
they were trying to give you, it's frustrating to the artist, to the, to the teacher, to the, to, so, you know, and Paul Sills had that, you know, but trespassing or, or being dumb or asking how to do something or violating any one of those precepts of Viola's work infuriated him and he didn't have the, um, he made it personal and uh, he, he, he would go after people um, and, and, and really just literally drive them away, see if he could drive them away to just be left with the people who could do the goddamn thing, you know? Um, which for him was great because he found the greatest talents in the world and was a brilliant director. But as a teacher, he even admitted that he would get frustrated and not know what to do. And so he would yell, but people took his yelling much more seriously. And he was much more uh, vehement about his uh, attacks on people than Viola was. Viola's anger would come like a, a summer storm and in a flash be over. And she'd say, all right, now let's play this. So we all got used to it, you know? Yeah. What a lovely person. What an incredible, lovely person. And, and... <clears throat> You know, I can see you doing a one-person uh, Viola Spolin show in her voice and character. <laughs> I think that would be lovely. I would like to see that. I I hear her voice so often when I teach, and I, I try to – I sometimes kind of do that kind of gruff little voice of hers. But she could also be very sweet and have a wonderful, uh, um, you know, uh, laughing quality, too. She was uh, as gentle as she was uh, – she was a lion and a lamb all in one. She really was. She, she could be funny. She would sing songs. We will, we will, we will not be moved. You know, she was part of the labor movement and all of that stuff. And she could be great fun. And that's what it's about, too, is fun. Yeah. Learning to have fun and to release some of these defenses that we hold up. I think a lot of the games, it's about breaking down defenses and being real. Yeah, but, but see, even the idea that you say breaking down, uh, uh, there's, like a, there's like a resistance, you know, to break through something right. like that. Right. Fun makes those, those resistances like cotton candy. They dissolve. Yeah. It's not like, and, and, and the game should dissolve the problem rather than break through or smash down. Right. Thank you for Very that. Very interesting. Yeah, semantics. Well, we yeah, no, and Viola was very involved in semantics. Like she would also say, she would never say, uh, don't do this. Or she would try not to. Sometimes she couldn't, you can't help it. Right. But yeah. she would always say, and she asked me when, you know, she, was, she said, I, instead of saying don't, I try to say the word avoid. Ah. Avoid doing this. Because she said that puts the ball in their court. It's their responsibility to avoid. Where if I say don't, they're, 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 they're doing a command of mine. And she said it's very subtle. But she said if you always give the power back to the student, the responsibility to the player, avoid that. Um, uh, work toward this. Shoot for that. Um, it's better than saying do this, don't do that. And because and 
the she said the that's the the bonds of approval disapproval are so strong in our culture and we are taught from a very early age to take orders from authority and authority is the easiest way to control a group of people but if you allow them their own natures it's going to be uneven in the development of how they do it but they will all become more autonomous, more self-responsible, more self-aware, and more um, interdependent rather than, um, you know, a monolithic group of people, um, uh, you know, acting out your commands. And as teachers, we fall into that so easily. Because uh, you, you, even though you say you, you want the process, you're looking for a result. And you want that result to be theirs, but if you don't do it the right way, they're gonna they're gonna credit that you know, oh my my teacher is responsible for all of the good work that I do, and it should never be that. So there's that humbleness and humility, where where if you give the student the dis discovery that they've discovered it on their own, rather than because you told them how to do something, they own it. It's theirs. Now, what they do with that, if they're good human beings, is they recognize that they got this gift from a teacher. But many students will just say, oh, I'm going to go out and teach this wonderful thing. And then, and many teachers came away from Viola Spolin, many students came away from Viola Spolin teaching her work without giving her due credit for it. And that always frustrated Viola. Um, because again, that's a sort of residual holdover to the approval disapproval thing, which is insidious. And Viola called it the 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 the, the sickness of the twentieth century, approval disapproval. That's a great quote. I love that. Because yeah. Sickness, and we see it today in so many examples. So many it's examples. So Gary, this is all terrific. In fact, I'm thinking. This could have been a podcast, actually, if I had Betty or a better audio on today. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, the other concept before we close, I want to talk about touching. You know, when you're stuck to touch something, or maybe I'm paraphrasing that incorrectly. But, you know, a lot of improv schools now, it's all noise going on. The dog's barking, they're mowing the lawn. Yeah. Improv schools or theaters are doing a lot of work on establishing boundaries right away and regarding yeah. gender and other things um safety mm -hmm. and that is important however uh so touching you know yeah only you know don't don't touch in the bikini area or something like that and quite frankly with my populations i work with i don't do that uh right not necessary, you know, with my older people or even my anxiety group, which is a mixed group. But I wanted your feelings about that and then wind that into the touching, you know, the touch exercises or use, use of touch in games. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, it shouldn't be an issue. Um, it's an issue um, when you have people who, you know, you have to call out if, hey, that's inappropriate, you know. Uh, but um, touching is you have to touch people. And Viola came up with the game contact where you have to, um, now here's the thing about contact that a lot of people miss. When you're only allowed to touch the person when, you, when it's accompanied by 
a line of dialogue. In other words, you have to come up with a line of dialogue in order to touch somebody. Now, because improv is so chatty and talky, uh, people are just simply, I touch you and say a line. You know, it's like hitting an intercom. But that's not it, you know, because they wanted to get the story out. And she said, she said, first of all, if you cannot find a way to integrate your physical touch with what you're saying, don't touch them. Use the where. Be in the scene with them. Silence is another way to communicate. But if you need to touch somebody in order to say a certain line, you have to integrate that touch. So if it's a reassuring thing, a hand on the shoulder, um, and then when they start, then, then you're starting to say, you know, I'm finding appropriate ways to touch somebody to say something, some dialogue that, is in, that I need to communicate. If you're just touching to say a line, that's dumb. That's ridiculous. Right. So contact is always about integrating the touch with line of dialogue, you know. And it's like, oh, you're, I love the way you do that, you know, or, um, you know, now you listen to me, you know, and you'll grab your face or something like that. Um, or, uh, you know, like an elbow. What are you doing? You know, but um, it has to be accompanied with the appropriate um, meaning and intention. I think it would be obvious if there was somebody who was sexually trying to contact somebody that that would just, just completely destroy the scene. And that, that person that it might even empower the person who is touched in that way to say, what the hell are you doing? You know, one of the funniest scenes I ever did in contact was I went up to a, this is a, a fellow actor of mine, you know, and we were having an argument and I grabbed him by the lapels and I said, you can't speak to me that way. And he threw me away and said, don't touch me. Now the game is contact. So the rest of the game was trying to find a way to touch him. And it would, it turned out to be a beautiful scene, funny scene. But since there was no touching, since he didn't want to be touched, you know, to find a way to touch him that I could, uh, you know, that, that could have meaning made this drove the scene beautifully. But sexual contact, that's a whole other thing. That's, that's people being inappropriate. And uh, that should just be called out immediately. But you shouldn't make strict rules that way. You should just, um, you know, uh, and if they're choosing situations that are sexual, just Viola would say, all right, I'm going to stop you. Let's try, it. Let's try it another way, you know. Pick a different relationship. Uh, but... There's, there's ways to handle it, but I think people are, are focused on this whole touching the Joe Biden thing. Uh, Jesus, you know, um, if it's meant for an appropriate communication, touching is fine. If it's meant to cop a feel, not fine. So to kind of summarize or synthesize our talk today, Gary. Yeah. <clears throat> what is some of the most important gifts that you got from Viola because as a student of yours I've received so many gifts. Oh Let's get that well, out you. before you say the final piece. Well I think one is the fact that um, Viola uh, uh, 
allowed me to discover my own abilities. She didn't, she didn't cultivate them. I had them already. She found ways to unlock what I was, uh, I, I couldn't see where the, the blocks were. And I, uh, we never addressed it directly, but um, uh, it was just also, um, she made me understand that, that a true teacher relationship is a, one of peerage, one of being a fellow player. We're helping each other. I mean, this, I need the student as much as the student needs me. The student is giving me the information that I'm working on my own, trying to solve my own problems about what does he need or she need. Instead of saying, I have all of this knowledge and bleh, there it is for you to either take it or leave it. No, it's a relationship. Um, and I think that's why I don't like sort of like people coming in for like, you know, five or six sessions. I like an ongoing relationship. I think the, the biggest gift was that Viola and I uh, developed a, a deep, warm friendship. Um, and, and that allowed me to develop as a teacher. Uh, not, not just, I didn't ex take anything from her. She gave me um, that understanding of that a teacher-student relationship is, a, is, is one of peerage, one of respect, one of going back and forth. Uh, if she made a mistake, sometimes she even apologized to me. One time, as a matter of fact, she one time told me this was the greatest blessing uh, in a party, you know, uh, when she told, I told you, she told me, uh, you know, maybe you should think about doing something else. And then later, like years later, I'm in her kitchen where after some party and everything, and there was a lot of people around and she announced to everybody, she said, you know, Gary, I one time told you, maybe you should think about doing something else. I said, I, I remember Viola very well. I remember. She said, well, honey, she said, I was wrong. She said, you're a fine player and coach and you have a thorough understanding of my work. And she said it to everybody in the room. And so I just said, may I quote you? <laughs> and she says, yes. So that's my favorite quote. 